This is an Eva Burroughs College podcast. The content covered here is intended for students enrolled in Eva Burroughs College courses and is part of a larger learning context. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome back. In this recording, we're looking at emotional communities. We're going to start with a brief overview of historian Barbara Rosenwain's methodology, which is called emotional communities. In her approach to emotions, Rosenwain deals closely with the language of emotions. She argues that a feeling remains elusive and uh, kind of unknown until a vocabulary for it is developed. So it's in naming the emotions that they are understood, felt and embodied. So it was this methodology um, that I used to study Catherine and William's Um, emotional life. And I followed um, a series of steps that Rose and Wayne suggests she use in discovering this emotional history. So the first step was to, um, what I did was turn to the letters written by Catherine and William to each other. And then I turned to Catherine's letters written to her parents and uh, then Catherine's diary and reminiscence. And what I wanted to do there was to look for words of emotion and in particular relating to anxiety. So then after I did this, the next step I took was to collate the occurrences of anxiety and the partnering emotions of anxiety into a dozier. The next step after that is that I gave attention to the patterns and sequences the partnering words, the narrative, and the physical aspects of the expression of the emotion, looking really closely at the surrounding text to really make sense of how anxiety was being used and how anxiety was being expressed. After this, I examined then the theological statements and ideas that were associated with the emotion of anxiety. So this aspect of the research operates with the assumption that anxiety and beliefs have a reciprocal relationship. That is that anxiety influences the incremental development of a set of beliefs. And in turn, these beliefs can increase cognitive biases that would perpetuate feelings of anxiety. So looking to see how anxiety and theology might then be in conversation together in the writings between the Booths and Catherine and and the people she was writing to. So approaching this research required caution because when we're attempting to hear and interpret the personal and public narratives of someone, and in this case, the founders of the Salvation Army, we can't ever really know if what we're accessing is reality. Um, the Accessing the emotions of the booths is only possible by examining the words that they used and the comments made maybe by others in biographies. But this is inevitably going to create a gap between what we can really know about their experience of the emotions and what the emotion actually really meant to them. Now, during the 19th century in particular, a significant shift is happening in so many ways, um, particularly around defining emotions. And 
the booths were really saddling two worlds of the old way of thinking and understanding emotions and the new way of thinking and understanding emotions. The other danger of making a reductionistic um, opinion is that we, is that um, perhaps the authors never intended for, for that feeling to be known in that way. And we can't ever test that because Catherine and William Booth are no longer alive. So we can't go to them and say, is this what you meant when you used that word emotion, uh, that word anxiety? So in order to avoid these pitfalls and to be reminded for myself of the biases and, and assumptions that I might have brought to my study, um, I used this methodology to help kind of, uh, to avoid those pitfalls. So in my research, what I found was that there were three, maybe four different shades of anxiety and they were identified by gathering the dosia that I mentioned, observing the patterns of the emotional language occurring across the source material. And then the other side was to consider them in light of secondary sources. So not as standalone, but trying to understand the context in which the booths were writing to each other, um, looking at some of the, uh, at that time writing about emotions, but also looking at their public writings where they were talking in a very different way, but to try and make sense then of their personal writings. And of course, also looking at um, the people around them, what they uh, were saying as well. So of course, as I said, this doesn't remove all of the issues that could happen, but it does uh, help us to try and get to maybe exactly what the booths uh, were expressing in that emotion. Well, the spiritual lives of the Booths were established in Method Methodism, as you would know by now. This strand uh, within the evangelical movement with distinct doctrines of assurance and sanctification. John Wesley was a staunch follower of Arminian theology, believing that salvation was available for all who would have faith in Jesus Christ. Um, historian David Bebbington suggests that the distinctives of Methodism were the inner witness of the spirit assuring the believer of conversion and then an, an additional experience of entire sanctification that may come about after what would be a protracted period following conversion. This experience was a result of faith and included the believer coming into the knowledge and experience of perfect love. The emotional life of Methodists were marked by both restraint and spontaneity and the spiritual experiences of conversion and sanctification were really emotional ones. The emotional vocabulary associated with these experiences included feelings of urgency, fear, dread, terror and conviction. And prior to the feeling of assurance um, being experienced upon conversion and entire sanctification, the person may experience a type of crisis which you would have heard me describe um, using Phyllis Mack's idea as the feeling of being stuck in the passage from one identity to another or a spiritual no man's land. This is where confusion and disassociation would be heightened. 
this no man's land was not a place for passive waiting and inaction. No, no Wesley, the, for him, this was a place of obedience. It was a place of zealousness and watchfulness and earnest prayer. You didn't sit and wait for something to happen. You were anxious about what would happen next. So when we talk in terms of emotional communities, we need to remember that this was the emotional community to which the Booths belonged. And they used this emotional uh, language as their way of interpreting their emotional lives. And so the emotional experiences and feelings associated with assurance were most valued. However, it was in the moments preceding these when one would experience deep anxiety that would make the feeling of assurance more pronounced. Wesley's own conversion experience was marked by a turning from uncertainty and anxiety to, toward what he described as a joyful sense of God's acceptance. So this mode of anxiety was also a valued effect featured in the experience of Christian perfection or sanctification. And I consider that further in another part of my research. In the 19th century, the Methodist teaching of sanctification was presented in new ways by American revivalists such as um, James Corgi, and um, you would have heard previously about Phoebe Palmer. For Corgi, sanctification was for all who wished to receive it. He orchestrated revival services in ways that would provide the congregants the opportunity to be made holy. A little bit of history about Corgi, because he's a key player for the Booths. Corgi was converted during a revival in Troy, New York in 1830, and he became an ordained Methodist minister in 1843. He began uh, revival services in Canada, America and Britain. And it was while he was conducting one of those revival services in Nottingham in 1846 that he became acquainted with William Booth. For Corgi, repentance and regeneration were the outcomes of robust and regular preaching. The sinner could be compelled to recognise their need for mercy through thoughtful proclamation of the gospel. So for William, Corgi was a really important figure. It is, I think it's possible uh, from, from what I can recall, it was in Corgi's revival service that William was converted. So he's a very important figure for William. And so Catherine often would remind William um, to consider Corgi as an example to follow. And in one of the letters, she says to William, remember Corgi's silent, soft, heavenly carriage. He did not shout. There was no necessity. He had a more potent weapon at command than noise. Corgi's weapons of choice were a firm grasp of the gospel message and a clear and effective manner of preaching that message. Now moving to, to Phoebe Palmer, for her holiness was attainable without waiting for it. There was a shorter way to holiness, and that's the title of one of her books, or um, the short title of one of her books. Palmer was an American Methodist Episcopal Church holiness preacher, as you would know by now, and she too conducted revival meetings across Britain between 1859 and 1863. 
So for Palmer, holiness was a very decisive act that could be received in a moment. One of um, Palmer's historian, his um, biography, biographical writers, Charles White, argues that Palmer taught that the person who was determined and gave themselves in full consecration was guaranteed entire sanctification. There was a systematic process that a person could take towards holiness. And that would include an instantaneous moment of purification as well as a more gradual and intellectual process of maturity. She kind of did this separating out of heart and mind, you know, that you, you could know uh, that you were made holy after a while, but it, your heart is already purified. So continuance in a state of holiness was possible in in Palmer's mind through the public testimony about the sanctifying work of God. Now Palmer's own approach to conversion and sanctification was much more pragmatic than emotional. You don't see a lot of emotions in her writing. Even the feeling of assurance needed the witness and confirmation of the scriptures. It was very pragmatic. For Palmer, feelings alone were not trustworthy and in fact they could lead a person astray. Historian Bebbington argues that Palmer recruited the Booths to the holiness cause and that her sanctification could be, could be seen in the doctrines of the Salvation Army. But there's other historians that think that this is an overstatement. Both Andrew Eason and Roger Green um, argue a bit differently in their own book, Boundless Salvation. And though Palmer was a significant mentor and influence upon the Booths, um, Eason, and, uh, Eason and Green believe that the doctrine of sanctification was definitely cultivated in British Methodism rather than Phoebe Palmer's um, own theology. So another important figure in the emotional community of the Booths and who you've already been discovering about is Charles Finney. Just a little bit of history about Charles, but with a particular focus now upon some of the emotional stuff that's going on for Finney. So he was born in 1792 in Connecticut, New York. As you will remember, he was a lawyer and was later converted um, to Christianity. And uh, like some of the others within the emotional community, he also led these revival uh, meetings. So Finney's theology has often been described as self-reforming. He emphasised human agency and effort, suggesting that self-reformation of moral behaviour was at the centre of conversion and holiness. Human feelings and intuition were partners with God in the work of regeneration. So before he arrived in Britain, his book Lectures on Revivals of Religion had gained substantial interest and we see this influence in Catherine and William. Uh, they read, we know they read these works and referred to them often. In his correspondence, William and Catherine encourage one another to read Finney's lectures on revivalism and we can see some of the methods being used in uh, the early Salvation Army. So this is a little bit of uh, the background to understanding William and Catherine's emotional community Methodism, Corgi, um, Palmer and Finney. 
what we're going to do um, in the next recording is dive in quite uh, a lot more thoroughly into Catherine Booth's own emotional vocabulary around um, her own anxiety. But just a brief word now about um, what my research um, kind of showed was that there were three or four different types of anxiety being expressed between the booths. And the one separated out was, uh, which we will look at more further in the next recording, is um, Catherine's emotional life of anxiety because she had a very distinct experience of anxiety that related to her own situation. But Catherine and William shared other modes of anxiety that were much more related to some of these ideas of assurance um, and the methods of ministry that they employed. Um, to understand further about Catherine and William, we need to also understand this statement that you might be now aware of, which is that William had said to Catherine that they shared um, an anxious temperament. So like many of their contemporaries, William and Catherine actually suffered from things that like shattered nerves, nervous breakdowns and melancholy. William described Catherine and himself, as I said, as having nervous temperaments, which was actually a very common descriptor of the person who was prone to refined sensibilities and states of fragility. The notion of temperament um, actually comes out of Greek philosophy and it's like a personality type or preference. So the Greek physician Galen in the second century developed an interpretation of Hippocrates' theory of this thing known as four distinct humours, which formed the basis for these psychological differences or temperaments. So the theory goes that the human body was composed of four elements or fluids. There was white bile, black bile, blood and phlegm. And this is what laid the foundations for the four different temperaments. So if there was an imbalance um, in the body of these fluids, that's when you would start to see melancholy and you would see these psychological, what we might now understand as psychological issues emerging for people. Um, Scottish physician Thomas Trotter, an 18th century, 19th century physician, described a nervous temperament in his own work on nervousness and stomach complaints, um, where he considers the predisposition to nervous and anxious temperaments as remaining with a person for their lifetime. And I think what we're seeing with William and Catherine is that's how they understood themselves as they were they were predisposed to anxiety and that was going to stay with them for their whole lives. And uh, in Thomas Trotter's work, he describes the signs of this temperament of anxiety as a sensible, irritable and mobile condition of nerves by which different organs of the body from slight causes are urged into violent and involuntary actions and their motions and sympathy often reversed, giving birth to false perceptions and er erroneous judgment and sometimes accompanied with pain of the acutest kind. Um, so what we're hearing there is this idea of that the 
the person who was prone to nervousness and anxiety, they were experiencing a full-bodied response to that anxiety that would really leave them unnerved. It would affect uh, every part of, of who they were. So we see in Catherine's writing that she actually interprets and accepts her own disposition in these terms. She writes in one of her letters, my temperament is so ardent and my nervous system so weakened by past affliction that I shrink from the trials of life with instinctive dread. I shall have to suffer and I fear the effects of it on my own mind. I fear I shall be irritable and impatient. And William also describes his own temperament. He doesn't only use anxiety and fear, we see with him more of a depressiveness. And he uses words like gloom, sorrow, despondency, and depression. And so we see both of them kind of having this overlap of some of the anxiety stuff, but also where they're a bit different is that William has definitely a sense of melancholy, whereas Catherine's not so melancholy. So that's just a bit of background to emotional communities and understanding the history of emotions in the 19th century that will set us up well to hopefully now understand Catherine Booth's expression of anxiety. Um, her anxiety definitely relates to gender issues, uh, which we are far more aware of now than even she was aware of, um, but it's a really exciting study. And um, I hope you'll listen in to that next recording. Bye for now.